0: It's Cardboard Time, episode number 42, and I'm your host, Arwen Kathke. On this episode, we'll be talking about my Shelf of Shame updates, and there have been a lot, some of my reasoning about my math trade picks of games to trade to others, and an interview with Taylor Schuss live from Origins Game Fair. So in a few days from the release of this episode, my annual AmeriCon will be taking place. A nice gathering of friends with some board games being played, hopefully reducing that shelf of shame again, but we're going to get into that in a minute. And a huge thanks to the Malted Meeple who, after seven years, closed their doors for the final time this past Saturday. I did get a chance to sit down with Jim Reed who is the owner of the Meeple, for a final chat about the establishment's history, the memories that were made there, and what's next for him. That will be debuting in a few weeks, but for now, thanks again for all the great memories, great staff, and for being such a welcoming place. We're definitely going to miss you. Now we did have an opportunity to close it down properly with Heather and Josh Schwartz, and I got to take home some pretty unique items. So make sure to watch our social media outlet for that in the near future. Well, let's get into today's beer of the day. Today's beer of the day is the Cowboy Conky Dong from Hoofhearted Brewery. And if you listened to the last episode, you heard that we went there with Tim Vernick, and what a great experience it was. From the beer perspective, I gave this a four point two five. There was a lot of complexity with this nice uh, double IPA and more towards the floral side. So you had some New Zealand hops in there like Moteca, Dr. Rudy, and Nelson Sovin combined with Mosaics and Amarillo from Texas. So it was all over the place. A lot of complexity. Uh, very, very good IPA. And from a brewery perspective this was a really eclectic and wild time like we said in the last episode you had patrick swayze night with the dirty dancing and going and toasting with champagne to the fact that they just have a random pool in the back a very unique artwork as well on all their beers this place was really a ton of fun and i can't wait to go back it may become a new origins tradition And I would highly recommend it if you're in the Columbus area. Well, it is time to check the Shelf of Shame, and we don't have any review games for today because we're going to be spending a little bit of time on this and the math trade, as I said at the top of the show. So the Shelf of Shame is at 166, and that is up 12 from the last time that we checked it. So, we did talk about a few of these on the Origins Rundown, so I may touch on them again very quickly. Uh, But I do also have some new stuff in store that we'll get into. So, the new additions that I've played already, there's been 10 of those. Uh, Sunny Day Sardines, Reincarnated. Uh, decorum green team wins set a watch we've talked about uh new york zoo is one that i didn't talk about so we got that out at the malted meeple and i definitely would like to talk about that in a future episode studies in sorcery by weird giraffe games i did get to play that and i will have a full review very shortly as well as gartenbau now gartenbau is by 25th century we had a wonderful time with that one Uh, i don't know if i'm gonna do a full review on that or not we'll see but i definitely recommend checking that one out if you are into very heavily aesthetic games a lot of floral tile lading really really cool game i definitely recommend checking that out catch the moon i will have a full review of that coming up very soon by thames and cosmos and one of the things that i did get to pick up from the malted meeple was a gigantic version of code names i think the cards are like four times their normal size They are absolutely massive, and I can't wait to bring this out to the table. Kind of a surprise for some company that may not know that I have it, Uh, but if you're a listener to the podcast, you're going to know, so there you go. So there are 17 new editions that I haven't played yet, and I will run those down now, starting with Nemo's War, Gunk Mono, La Ila, Kingsport Festival, Euphoria Build a Better Dystopia, and Five Tribes, all coming from the math trade. Burn Cycle, New York Pizza Delivery, Nidavalier, Fossilis, uh, all coming from purchases that I made at the convention, with the exception of New York Pizza Delivery and Nidavalier. New York Pizza Delivery was a Kickstarter that I got, and Nidavalier. Uh, was a promotional copy that I got. A Gift of Tulips from Weird Giraffe Games. I did get to demo that at the convention. I can tell you that I already really like the gameplay flow, uh, but I'm going to wait until I have a full play in to do my review of that. Old London Bridge by Queen Games. Stick'em Anno 1800. The Little Flower Shop Dice Game was a Kickstarter that I got in the mail. Uh, speaking of which, Blood on the Clock Tower finally came in after like three years plus, I believe, that I've been waiting for that, and just by the production quality alone, I cannot wait to get this out to the table. I've heard nothing but great things. I do need to get the right group assembled that uh, is going to enjoy playing it, so i looking forward to that one. And then Star Trek Frontiers was another acquisition that I got from the Malted Meeple. Basically, Mage Knight in a Star Trek theming. Very interesting, intrigued me. I love Mage Knight to begin with, so I know that I'm gonna love this. And then three games that actually are leaving the collection are Legends of the Hidden Temple, uh, Warhammer Disc Wars, and Funkoverse Rick and Morty. I will be talking about those. In a minute here as I talk about math trades. Now I did participate in the math trade as origins, like we said, uh, Jamie really enjoyed it, and I did as well. The math trade system was really interesting, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with math trades, math trades basically facilitate trades between multiple parties at once. So the gist of it is that you put together a list of what you want and what you're willing to trade. And since there might not be a direct match between party to party, a math trade will use an algorithm to make multi-step trades. So basically you give a game or cash to somebody and they give a game or cash to someone else and so on and so forth so it really kind of creates these little chains of trades that you go and you get what you want but you don't necessarily directly give that person what they want so there's some chaining going on as far as how the actual algorithm works i'm not entirely positive Uh, i just do know that that's how the trades are facilitated I again, really enjoyed it. A good amount of games on my list did come from the math trade that were new. Um, you know, and and they're all games I've been looking forward to playing and just hadn't really decided to pick up, you know, some that I've heard about for a long time and then others I've just heard about recently that people have said, "Oh, you've really got to play this." So, I did do a TikTok video and Basically, math trades are a really good way of being able to pick up some games and trade for things that you don't necessarily want. And that gets into my next point. How did I decide what to trade? And this was interesting because I want to go back to maybe like 2018 or so, and Marie Kondo was extremely popular And I had a major issue with that philosophy because it's like, oh, well, you know, these spark joy and these don't. Well, all my games spark joy, obviously, if I bought them. But when I actually stepped back and took a look at it lately, she was absolutely right, especially with a collection of my size. So there were things that didn't necessarily spark that joy, quote unquote, uh, in my collection. And when I really step back and look at it, uh, a couple of things have actually influenced the size of my collection over the years. The first thing is buying games because I thought the theme and mechanics looked cool, and I made a concerted effort and, and definitely played that game as soon as I bought it. The other way that I bought games was just spending money because it made me feel good pre-transition and i found that this went down dramatically after i decided to transition and i didn't need to spend that money to kind of have something that wasn't taking up space in my mind um you know it, it just basically went and hey this made me feel good this gives me a little dopamine hit i can deal with my day these were the games that really clogged my shelves So games I didn't necessarily intend on playing right away, games that I didn't necessarily have an interest in the theme or the mechanics, nothing that I really, really wanted to get out to the table. It was like, oh, yeah, I could get this out to the table at some point, right? And those were games that were cheap. They had, you know, big real estate like we talked about before with these giant boxes. So I, I really needed to take a step back. I took a step back at my collection and I said, you know, what games are there on the shelf that don't, again, spark joy? Uh, meaning, what don't I really want to play again with somebody else? What if I just felt that the game was kind of okay? And what am I not excited about getting to the table, even if that game is unplayed? And that was a huge mental block that I had to get kind of over and past is yes it's okay you bought this game you definitely didn't need to and it might have been a mistake or at one point I was getting those big board game bento boxes and not really getting the games that I wanted um, so those are all things that yeah you know what I didn't play this but I now knowing what I know I don't necessarily want to And this was also reinforced lately with the amount of review copies I have to get through. Uh, The amount of time that I have to get through games that don't really catch my interest is dwindling quickly. I have a lot of review games to get through. I have a lot of content to record. So those are all considerations that I have to look at and say, you know what? i'm not gonna get to this game and space in my game room is also running out pretty quickly so the bottom line is those games would be better off in the homes of those who would more readily be able to play them so that i think is kind of the moral of the story here get those games off to people who can really enjoy them and either get some cash or get other games that you are excited about getting to the table so uh that that was kind of my mentality of what to trade and I was just starting to get into that you know when I was going to make this list for origins and what I wanted to put up in the math trade I just kind of dabbled in it because I wanted to see how does this feel you know do I feel good about trading these off does this feel right and again it really did um so Definitely something that I'm going to be doing more of at Gen Con, but I will get to that in a minute. So what games did I get rid of? And I'm not going to mention them all here, uh, but I did want to touch on a couple that might actually be kind of surprising for people. Uh, if you've been listening to the show, a lot of the games I was kind of unsure about, or I said that I was going to get rid of, made the list, you know, you've, you've heard of a few of those. Uh, those made the list to Uh, leave my shelves like I had mentioned in episode 40 through the ages got traded off and it's definitely a great game it's one that I enjoy I've gotten through a few games of the uh, app version but it's just a fantastic example of a game that I felt the digital version vastly did a superior job and I think that I would enjoy the physical version, but I have so many games I have to get out to the table that really I just kind of said I can get rid of this one. It's okay. It's just taking up shelf space. I'm gonna get this one out through the app. And like I had mentioned up top, the three that I had traded off, Legends of the Hidden Temple, really didn't catch my interest once I read through what the gameplay was, and neither did Warhammer Disc Wars. That is kind of a common theme that I didn't necessarily either read through the gameplay or I had no idea of what the gameplay loop was going to be. With my experience and doing more reviews, I'm actually a little bit more versed in, okay, I can look at this box, I can listen to a a quick summary of what the game is, And I have a much better idea of what that game is going to provide and whether or not it's going to be for me. And the gameplay of Funkoverse as a whole really didn't appeal to me either. I know a lot of people are big fans of it, but for me, I'm not really much one for heads up combat. I have a couple of games like Aegis that do that really, really well. And this just didn't hit for me. It just didn't have that feel that I was looking for. So I love the concept of being able to clash these universes together, but the gameplay just felt kind of dry for me. Speaking of dry, Twa, uh, or Troy's or however you're going to pr- pronounce it, uh, was a game that really should have hit with me uh, on a lot of cylinders, and it's dry dice placement euro just it it should have hit with me and it didn't I don't know why I tried it a couple of times and it just did not hit with me so that is one that left my collection that's kind of surprising to a lot of people people are like why do you not like twa and it, it just it felt okay and again it If I think that something's just kind of okay, it doesn't really necessarily have a place on my shelf. The last one that I wanted to talk about was Arcadia Quest, and this was interesting in theory, but the one major issue that I found was that it definitely promoted a runaway leader with its kind of post-session reward system. Uh, It's not necessarily a terrible issue when you get four players, as the rest of the players can gang up on the leader, but if you have a smaller player count, uh, it can be a real issue, especially just heads up. And... That, combined with the fact that finding four players for a campaign game at this point can be a very, very tough thing to do nowadays. Uh, It's tough to balance catch-up mechanisms with trying to reward someone for doing well. Uh, This one, I just felt more or less heaped rewards on the person that was doing well and relied on all the rest of the players to balance that out, which again... With four people is fine, Uh, with less was not the greatest for me. So all in all, uh, those were the ones I really wanted to mention that I got rid of. But I took a look again through my collection because, again, now this felt good. uh, This felt right. This felt like something that I wanted to do some more of. And so I went through my shelves and took a really much more in-depth look and said, you know what, I've got 45 games on the docket for Gen Con that I can take care of, and I can get rid of. So uh, we'll see what makes the final trade pile. I have to go in and finish up my selections, but I'm interested to see how this one's going to go at Gen Con. A little bit different system than the one that was at Origins, a little bit, I, I would say, old-fashioned. Others would say clunkier. Uh, But it it definitely was uh, a little bit of a different system to have to get used to. So uh, again, if you're looking to potentially get rid of some of those games that are just kind of taking up space on your shelf, math trades are really good for doing that. And uh, usually they'll have a flea market associated with it as well. So check those out. See if they're for you. Uh, it, it's not terribly complex, but there are some some things kind of getting into it that you need to know. And there are a lot of resources out there to learn. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Well, stay tuned, because coming up next, we have an interview with Taylor Shuss. So welcome back. On today's interview segment, we have Taylor Schuss on our first ever live interview with a guest from Origins 2022. Taylor is the designer of Stonewall Uprising, a asymmetric deck building tug of war about the fight for LGBTQ civil rights. After playing the game last year at Origins in October, I knew I had to get Taylor on the show to talk about the game. Nearly a year later, here we are, in person, back at Origins. Taylor, welcome to Cardboard Time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I, I appreciate you being here. How's the convention going for you so far?
1: Uh, busy. I, I've been demoing the game a lot and uh, going to talk to other publishers about other projects. So, busy, you know.
0: I hear that there's other projects in line. That's, that's amazing. That's something that I will ask you a little bit more about later. But why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, my name is, uh, is Taylor. I, I'm a game designer from Southern California. You know, not all my games are about historical topics or like wildly serious, but when I had the ideas for Stonewall, you know, I just, I just couldn't help myself.
0: Why don't you tell me a little bit more about your place in the LGBTQ community?
1: Sure, um so I'd say the biggest one is that I identify as a gay cis man, so you know I, I'm gay I'm you know I'm queer in that way mm-hmm. um, my my nephew currently identifies as trans as well, so you know I, I have some experience a little bit there, although it's not my experience you know it's, it's but I'm hearing about it I'm you know I mean I'm an uncle, so I hear about that stuff
0: yeah, you are family and it is somebody in your family that you're working with which is which is fantastic it's great. And,
1: and my maternal grandfather uh, was gay as well. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of some weird links all the way up the chain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes it happens that way, it
0: seems. Like, there's, there's a family connection. I, and I think part of that comes from seeing acceptance and seeing, oh, yeah you know, it, people accepting and loving and seeing that kind of community... Almost uh, kind of coalescing around that person. I think that that's, uh, that's really important, and that can lead to, well, my whole family, you know, had,
1: <laughs> had some background, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it all kind of runs downhill, I think. So. <laughs> and a, hopefully in a positive way. That, that's... Absolutely. So tell
0: us a little bit more about Stonewall Uprising.
1: Uh, well, the gist of it is Stonewall Uprising is, a like, like, you, like you mentioned earlier, it's a two-player um, asymmetric game. Where one player places pride uh, trying to fight for their civil rights in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the man is trying to fight against those rights uh, in the same timeline. Um, we try to show pretty cleanly pride has, has fun colors, and although it's not fun what they're doing, it's difficult and backbreaking work, they're fighting against these systems of oppression that the man is, fighting, is throwing at them, right? So we, you know, like the man has all this dim dark unfun art that is you know it's it's scary it's not it's not exciting to look at it's not fun um whereas pride you know they're they're fighting hard um but they have a lot of personality and they have a lot more you know nuance to what they're doing whereas the man is just these systems of oppression over and over and over trying to stop the movement and you know however they can
0: so one thing that we've talked about on the show before has been what comes first, you know, the, the design and the mechanics or uh, the theme. And I'm pretty sure that I know what the answer is already, but uh, what was the case in Stonewall Uprising?
1: So it's funny, I, about a week ago, I posted a Board game Geek design diary on this, but um, the, the, the short of it was I came up with the game in like 2018, 2017. I was working on it, I needed a new theme, it's about like the board progresses um and i was like oh that could be like it was about like terraforming and i really didn't like it so we were concepting other themes and one of the ideas was like time progressing or like maybe the mongols attacking europe those are cool ideas and one of the ideas that I was volleyed about was the jews being led by moses out of egypt because it's a pretty famous event right mm-hmm. now i'm not really a, a biblical person in any way um but, you know, I'm aware of that, but I don't really have the details. And I felt like it wasn't really my story to tell. And afterwards, I, I started thinking, hey, what would be, like, my story to tell? What could be something that I could talk about that maybe another designer might have a harder time understanding? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe I could bring to a wider audience, even just a little bit. And that's when I thought about Stonewall. I'm like, oh, well, our history is, you know, it it's, it's, begins pretty rough. To put it mildly. Oh, very rough. And of course Stonewall's not the <laughs> beginning of the history. Queer people have been around all throughout history. Mm-hmm. But showing when things started to change, I think, is is mostly what I want to be talking about. Um, that's not always the case, actually. But, uh, but here, it is especially the case. And um, I... Yeah, it felt like the right thing to do. So it, after that, it percolated for like two years. And then... A few months into COVID, i was i was thinking about game ideas and how i could do this or that or the other and i had an idea that that felt perfect for this and then i started putting pen to paper doing a lot of research and it just kind of came together like really really quickly
0: oh that's amazing and that's actually the opposite of what i thought i (laughs) thought you would have said you had the concept you wanted, you know, to design a game around Stonewall, and that's the exact opposite. Well, of I mean,
1: it did start with the theme. It just, I, I let it perk I let it sit and mature in my head, and think about how I wanted to do it. Because when I thought about a Stonewall game, the first idea is like, oh, you do the Stonewall riots, and it's like this cooperative endeavor where you and and your your, your friends are fighting against the police. I think there's a game that should be like that. I, I, I don't think I it's think, a bad idea.
0: Yeah, I think there's absolutely a game in that.
1: Um, but I was playing games like This Guilty Land at the time by Amabel Holland, and I saw how by playing both sides of the conflict, it it had a message, it had a narrative it wanted you to go through, um, and it made you feel things. And I I was hoping to emulate something like that with my game, um, and so that's why I ultimately decided to go for a competitive game where it's head-to-head, and uh, But yeah, I mean, I'd love to see a Stonewall game where it's cooperative, and I think there's totally a place for that in the market, 100%.
0: Do you think that might be something that you develop later, or...?
1: Maybe. Cooperative games are hard, very hard, for other reasons. It's possible. I have a co-op game that I'm working on uh, that is also kind of queer, but it is set in the far-flung past and not anywhere now. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it'd be cool... Although having two games about Stonewall would be kinda of wild. I, I I mean who knows. I, I'm not I'm not saying no, I'm just you saying it'd be kinda of wild.
0: Can make a whole series. I mean Gosh. you know, Emerson Matsuchi, you know, made a uh, Century, you know, he could have the three games that kinda of work together.
1: Sure. I mean, I think he yeah. set out to make sure th- that they I, work I, I, together yeah. to begin with. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I, I have some ideas in that realm, but most of them remain ideas. Even though, you know, I, I'm working on a lot of things, of course. I mean, I, I can't just work on one game. It's not.
0: Yeah. You've done an extensive amount of research on the subject in the development of this game. Can you tell me some of the things that you've learned during your time working on the game?
1: Sure. A lot of the info from the 60s can be sparse uh, because just not a lot was recorded. Not, not, not well or easily or, or kept well, right? That, that's a whole other issue. And so hard details from there. You know, broad detail is pretty easy. You know, like actual exact detail is kind of hard. But, I mean, the stuff that I found really wild was about... I think the pride flag is the big one. You know, when I think of the pride flag, I think of the six colors. And, I mean, granted, now there's, there's new pride flags, like a progress pride flag and things like that. But when Gilbert Baker made it in 77, I never knew it had eight colors in it. I had no clue it was an eight-color flag to begin with. Mm-hmm. And when I first saw it, I go, whoa. That looks really familiar, but it's, something's off. And, you know, it's, if you read about it, you can look this up on Wikipedia, it's super easy. You know, uh, they, they had the eight color flag and then they, it was, the pink was at the top and the pink was too expensive to mass produce. <laughs> so they, were, they, they said, okay, well, we need, we need to be able to make a lot of these because by 77, Pride Parades, you know, were half a decade in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they cut off the pink because it was too expensive to make those. And then, and then it was an odd number of colors and they wanted to be able to cut them in half for big, big parades and big floats. And that's why they cut the light blue out. And that's how we got the commercial pride flag, as, as it's called more accurately. Because mm-hmm. um, again, you have the progress pride flag. And I mean, there's a ton of variations now, but for a long time it was just six colors. Um, and I really liked the simplicity of that. Uh, the other thing was, you know, how, how late a lot of the other ones came. Uh, doing, doing research and looking into the flags, because I announced recently that we have special covers that you can get, which have pride flags on the covers themselves, and actually changed kind of the lettering of the logo to, to demonstrate that, you know, how late a lot of those flags came into the process. The, the trans flag and the bi flag were both made in the late 90s, and the lesbian flag we're using is pretty modern for, because of a lot of issues there. And it was, you know, there's was a big discussion internally about what to use and what's most respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's, you know, just the history of those, like those alone, just, just those yes. pride flags. <laughs> um, and then seeing a lot of the, you know, reading about the response in the eighties, not only from the main media, but also internally within the queer communities it was really heartbreaking because so many people were so adverse and hesitant to practice safe sex. And, and, and just be safe generally, not go to bathhouses. Mm-hmm. I mean it's wild today. I mean just to consider it.
0: Yeah, it was it was certainly a different time back then and it's kinda of scary to think about that now in, in the terms of I, I guess it's good that we've made that amount of progress, uh, even though there's forces that are trying to push that back. I, I I do think that looking back at that it's it's very frightening to to see the way that things were.
1: Yeah, and I mean, one of the other things that I think is, again, wild, and that impacts everybody, mm-hmm. everybody listening this, to this can understand that in the late 80s, the CDC was very slow to act, um, and I'll note, they acted, It just, just uh, NIAID and the NIH had a really hard time responding to a lot of the claims about AIDS and HIV, because it takes so long for things to manifest, and for there to be any consistent manifestation, and so ACT UP the Gay Men's Health Group formed, that didn't quite go anywhere. ACT UP formed. I mean, they did, did things, but not like ACT UP. ACT UP did things and demonstrations and protests, and they really got people talking. They put a giant condom around one politician's house who was very anti-giving money to AIDS, and they lobbied the CDC and all those, and all those places, like the NIAD. And what's wild is they knew their stuff. They were doing internal research and, and spreading that informally through the other AIDS activists. And what that led to was the fast tracking of a lot of medicine that did save lives. Um, Although they were a little reckless at first, it's true, but it led to the fast tracking, which is the reason we have like a COVID vaccine so early. It would have taken almost 10 years without the work that ACT UP did. And just just the ramifications, boom, boom, boom. And who did a ton of work on that? Anthony Fauci. Like, Mm -hmm. whoa, you know, I, I didn't know that like, Three years ago, I, I had no clue, but you just do all this research and it just cascades. And, and again, I did through. this research during COVID times, so you know, I I had a lot of time in my hands. <laughs> I think we all did. Yeah. Um so what other
0: games did you find, if any, that have tackled this subject?
1: Uh well there's the classic Gayopoly. Wait, I'm kidding. <laughs> um Although that game uses the Hanky Code, which I was very surprised by. Yeah. I, I did not expect to see the hanky code like a real thing in a game like Gayopoly, you just kind of expect them to put rainbows on something. Um, yeah. uh, there aren't really games that have tackled any topics like this. There are games that are adjacent. Uh, Fog of Love has... has I, I haven't played Fog of Love, but I know they have multiple covers and like versions with queer characters. Yeah. Um, and I think that's amazing. I think that's awesome. Um, and there's a lot of games that have queer themes. Uh, maybe not a lot, but there are some um, that have them... And, But there's none really t- directly talking about the history of, of our culture <laughs> in this way. And so, for me, that's one reason why this Guilty Land really spoke to me, because it was talking about this horrible event, it, really before the event, because it's right before the Civil War. And it's talking about it and trying to be mature and earnest about what's going on, but showing you how terrible it was. Um, and so I, I looked at that as inspiration because it was... there aren't aren't really a lot of comparable serious games. There's very few serious games to begin with. Yeah. Um, And it's tough because you want games to always be fun, but having moments of earnestness I think is valuable.
0: Well, and and the ability, I, I think one of the things from my perspective, when I played it, is the ability for the game to convey a very visceral feeling. I have not had that in my entire time of gaming, which has been, you know, 15-plus years, I think, at this point. Um, and, and really, to have that and have that unique feeling and sensation was was something that was very real. It's it's a theme that isn't often explored, like you said, um, but it's something that maybe should be explored a little bit more.
1: Well, one thing that I've had some conversations here at the convention is about how games are art, and I think that's just a fact, mm-hmm. But because we have to commercialize them, it's scary. The, the stronger the reaction, the less likely you're gonna know how good your sales are. And I love games that don't have strong, serious themes, mm-hmm. but you know, if we're gonna really call games art, we kinda have to own up to it, I think. Yeah. And I think um, one of the biggest goals I had with Stonewall was to get that emotional reaction in, in what I might call the fairest way. <laughs> you know, in, in a reasonable way where I'm not, like, just manipulating how, you, how you're feeling, but having the game tell a narrative of what's going on without having to to make you read a history book about what's going on or what... Ha- I, want, I want the game to tell the story with you, and you have agency in that story. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to do. It's very hard to do well. I think I've done a decent job, but honestly, it's not really for me to decide at this point. Right, right. I... I personally
0: think you've done a great job. And, you know, we've we've mentioned that on the podcast uh, after Origins last year. Uh, we've talked about the game. So if you do want to know uh, more about the game, you can definitely go back and hear our thoughts uh, on our Origins wrap-up from 2021. Now, how important do you feel, given the era that we live in, that the subject material um, that this game tackles is? So really giving people that opportunity to live the history and to really understand the events, you know, how important do you think that is?
1: I mean, I think it's incredibly important. I think right now, you know, things look very spooky for a lot of people, and I don't think it's unreasonable to feel that way. And it's somewhat uplifting to see us as a community come from basically nothing. I mean, really not. I mean, the game starts when there's some groups active, but just to see that evolve over time. And the best thing is you're playing the game with it. You're evolving your community over time when you're playing Pride. And, you know, on some level, it also helps you abstractly understand the pushback. The more you get your ball rolling, so true is for the opposition. And I think, you know, my game can only go so far. You know, I can't teach people how to... You know, speak up and be activists or anything like that. I'm not. That's not happening. It's mm-hmm. still a board game. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to abstract all these things. But showing people, look, we've come this far, and we're not stopping. You know, the fire is going to keep on burning, um, and then everything's just going to just going to make it work because people have to put in the work and effort. It's not just magic, of course, and I don't want anyone to think so, together-wise. But you know, it's it's hugely important that we, we understand where we came from and what people said then and how wrong they were. And the parallels now were just uncanny. I mean, just uncanny. When I hear someone say, think of the children, I just roll my eyes. Yeah. I go, oh, yeah, I've never heard that one before. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, what a new one there. So, I mean, honestly, you know, doing a lot of my research for this, I kept hearing the same arguments over and over. And, over, and you just kind of get numb to it. You're, you just go... Man, I can't imagine how activists of the day felt. I would just... Oh, my gosh. It just... My, I mean, you, I hear stuff like that even today. But thankfully, it's a lot less. And typically, it's toned down to the point where you can talk to people. And you go, look, you know, think about it in this context. Why might not that be a reasonable thing to say? Mm-hmm. Do, do you, yeah, so it's... I, I think... I mean, I think it's hugely important. Um, and, you know, if someone doesn't want to play my game... Uh, you know, it, it, it is, it is you know, it's strong for a lot of people, I get that, but there is important work to be done today, and, you know, if I can help with that in any way, that's fantastic.
0: You have developed almost a position of uh, deep understanding from a historical context where you can see, like you said, some of the arguments that are being made today and how they just echo things that were said in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I think that's one thing that I hadn't thought of until now to really, you know, say it, it's the same stuff over and over and over again, yeah, and you it's see, not Yeah, you true. see the
1: recurring themes, the motifs, and you go, okay, I, okay, like, <laughs> do you think now I really, like, now is the time you're telling the truth? Come on, and sometimes, you know, I get the vibe, it comes from a place, typically, where, where they really do feel that way. But you hear it time and time again, and I go, surely you have to see the pattern. Surely, you know, it's just it's just wild, because I, I get it. It's a natural reaction. But if you stop and think about it, you go, oh, well, we said this then, and we were dead wrong. Yeah. Maybe the same is true now, you know. <laughs> so it, it, it's tough. I, I think it's, it's very tough. But, yeah, there, it, there's all these patterns you see, and it just... It's kind of scary to see them just lie back on the same argument. You go, come on, stop it. Yeah. How long is it going to take you to find a new argument? Yeah. So I, I do want to
0: talk to you a little bit about the artwork for a moment. And you had brought it up earlier about the contrast between the man and Pride's artwork. And they're really dramatically different from one another. When and how did you come to a decision on that?
1: Um, it was a pretty early idea we floated about having two different artists to do the sides to make sure the contrast was clean because we didn't want anyone to get the wrong message that they were totally equal in every way. You know, the gameplay is not equal. Um, and so we figured showing that through the art made a lot of sense. Uh, but we had a ton of talk about the art and how to portray it. I, I think one of my favorite ideas was doing like a Norman Rockwell, like photo realistic look for all the man cards. So they show like, you know, that kind of, like, happy family, but the joke is they're doing all these horrible things. Like, they just in that style. Um, and, like, we had a lot of ideas. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was very early. It felt really natural about doing that. And the desaturation is something that's in the man's artwork. It's not... It's funny. It's not always exactly present, but oftentimes when there's color, it's because of pride. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a card called Police Raids in the game in the 60s where it shows the police holding their weapons out at some sort of nightclub gathering or what have you. And there's all this purple light coming out of the club and you're like, oh, that's pride. They're the ones with all the color and and jubilance here, Um, not the men."
0: Yeah, so I feel that this could potentially be used as an educational tool. And I've talked to different organizations in uh, the Cleveland, the Akron, uh, even the Columbus area about potentially using it to educate people at community centers about what's gone on do you feel that it could be used as an educational tool
1: that's tough i i love the idea of using games as education but there's a lot of hills to climb mm-hmm. if the game played with a million more players that'd be way easier you know if you could play with eight people oh man yeah oh my gosh but because it's a one-to-two player game, that's a little harder. Mm-hmm. In a classroom, you can't—you know—it's—it's it's difficult to have one student and everyone else watch, obviously, and it's awkward to give everyone a copy. Um, I can—I can see it as value in the education realm for sure. I know a lot of people walk away looking up characters that were in the game—people, real people that lived and, and fought for our rights. Um, gosh, some of them do. Some of them still do. Sorry, it's really wild. Mm-hmm. And. I, I love the idea of people doing that. It's, on the other hand, it's hard because you know, when, when you want to learn something, it can be easy to read about it, but I understand everyone learns two different ways. Um, and, and maybe the answer for that is, is the fact there's a solo mode, and if you really want to learn the history and that's your primary aim, maybe that's the answer. I don't know. I think it's tough. I think there's some hurdles to jump, but I think it's possible. I, I'd love to know if it was used in educational context, and if anyone listening uses it that way, feel free to let me know because that'd be wild. That'd be awesome. Now,
0: one thing that we've handled on the show quite a bit and we've asked a lot of people is how important you feel representation is in board gaming.
1: I mean, hopefully it's obvious, but I think, <laughs> I think it matters a lot. I think seeing yourself in a game is amazing. And for um, minorities where it's not immediate, immediately apparent, it can be hard. It can be hard to show that in a game. And a piece of art because in a lot of games, you have a static piece of art, right? You go, oh, that's a character in the game, and they, they're like an archer or something. But it's pretty rare you're going to know who they want to go to bed with or how they identify. <laughs> so I, I think that's an interesting challenge. I've seen games approach that in really cool ways where in the background they might have like a pride flag, and you're like, oh, I get it. That character's pan, you know? Or it shows uh, what gender they identify have or, or don't identify, you know, mm-hmm. what, how they identify gender-wise. I think that's great too. I just think it's a big challenge to show that cleanly, um, and a lot of that is usually used for like m- mechanical space. And to use it for representational space is great, but it's awkward because the graphic design can clash. You know, it, it's it's difficult, right? You want to make the game work, but you also want to have representation. Right. So, you know, I love the I I love it. It's just hard to integrate cleanly and neatly. But when, but when I see it done well in games, it's awesome. I mean, I love it. You know.
0: And I think there's a distinction between having it in there and having it in there for the sake of having it in there, and it it almost feels forced in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you, like you said, when you have it cleanly, when you have something that your characters are just genuinely diverse for the. You know, the fact that they're characters and they come from diverse backgrounds and it's organic. Yeah. That feels completely different.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a really hard chord to strike well. Um, My game is literally about the gay civil rights movement. So, you know, that that I think kind of gets a pass. Mm -hmm. But a lot of games, you know, I see queer characters and it's always hard to tell. It's always... I think that's one reason why I respect the the people who do Faga Love so much because they 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 felt so strongly they made separate products for it. Mm-hmm. That to me, I mean that that's going above and beyond. I think.
0: You make know, a, pro- props to them. Make a separate skew for. Yeah,
1: I mean, really going out of the way, making a whole product to say, look, we we understand and we're going to support you the best we can. So, I mean, I, honestly, I really respect that. I think it's hard to go that far for a lot of people because, I mean. Partially because of the money because you know you need to figure out the sales, but to have that much confidence in it, it's just amazing. I love it
0: so now that you've you've tackled this subject, do you feel that there's other underrepresented themes out there that could be taken on by either yourself or others
1: i mean I mean there's a million and one underrepresented themes if I'm being honest, right uh, not all of them are historical, uh, but the important ones are mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, I mean the the Black Civil Rights Movement, in the, in the same era, is huge. And I can think of maybe two games about it, but there's so many more. I mean, you know, even even more in this specific vein would be great. Like I, like a Stonewall game about actual Stonewall, mm-hmm. which lasted three whole nights. Hey, those rounds, boom, boom, boom. You know, I, I can envision it somewhat um, enough. And I I think there's a lot of underrepresented themes that I'm probably wildly ignorant on. <laughs> and would be, would be great to learn. You know, it's, it's, it's really great. And I know that one of the moments for me that really taught me that I could want to learn more about a game was playing Cole Worley's Infamous Traffic. Um, in that game you play as opium dealers uh, trading into China and you're not good people. Spoilers, you're, mm-hmm. not, you're not good people at all. And in the game, it's a pretty small uh, you know, it's a, it's a small-scale game, and in the game, there's one token, one police token called, like, Lin Zexu or something. I'm probably saying that deeply wrong. I apologize for how how wildly wrong I'm probably saying that. And I lost the game because of that token, because it's just, it's savage. It's just, like, double police action. And so I went home, and I looked up who that person was, because I was so incensed, that they got me so good. And you know, it was all fair play. No one was doing anything under the table. But man, and, uh, and I looked up and they were just an uncorruptible person who had really high morals about dealing with the opium trade and protecting China at the time. And you know, for, for me that stuck with me, right? Like I remember that moment. I remember what I did. And I hope that people see people in like Stonewall and do the same thing. And I hope that for future games too. That's why every card is flavor text in the game. So it's easy for you to get hooked and say, like, I wanna know more about that person. I wanna know what that person's about. And the fact that they're all real people and real events is part of the, part of the reason I'm hoping that'll actually happen.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And this is, I promise, gonna be the last question that I ask you about the game. Um, how do you plan on getting it into the hands of the general public?
1: So uh, the company that is uh, publishing it, Catastrophe Games, is a relatively small historical games company. Uh, Our plan is to run a Kickstarter later this month and they print in America, so the turnaround time is pretty quick. Um, I believe the plan is when the Kickstarter ends that you take a month and change before people start getting shipments. Um, I don't want to be promised on that, but my Mm -hmm. understanding is that with the manufacturer we have. um, So yeah, that's kind of the general plan uh, as I understand it.
0: And later this month will be uh, later towards the end of June yeah. uh, when this comes out?
1: Yeah, it should be toward the end of June. Yeah, that's correct. Sorry, I, I, forget, I forget recording.
0: <laughs> yeah, no worries. It's something that's always on my mind. Um, so let's pivot away a little bit and let's talk about uh, any other games that you've designed or are in the hopper currently.
1: I mean, I have a lot of games that I'm, I'm working on. The one that would be of the most interest to you almost certainly is The Sacred Band a co-design with uh, Joe Schmidt, uh, who is a great co-designer. And it's about the Sacred Band of Thebes. The Sacred Band of Thebes were, uh, Thebes was a Grecian city um, back in, you know, 300 BC, 400 BC, around there. And uh, they, they were a little different. A lot of people think of ancient Greece, and they think of how accepting they were, and that's kind of true-ish, but it's not the whole story, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of nuance to things. Um, at the time, loving other men uh, was acceptable to a point, to an age, typically. So like in Sparta at the time, they're one of their kings, they had a two-king system, an older king and a younger king. It's a really cool system, by the way. I liked it a lot. Uh, they weren't really big on the whole male love stuff. Not at the time. hmm and Athens was more okay with it, but you were expected to marry a woman as a man. Thebes, on the other hand, was the exception. You could live with your partner however you wanted, however old you were. It was totally fine. I mean, I'm not saying nothing happened ever. But it, and, and that's because Her, uh, Hercules is uh, mythically from Thebes. And Aeolus, I believe that's the name. Um, we don't have a lot of mythology in the game, so this is my memory kicking in, mm-hmm. um, was a lover of his. And so they had an unusually accepting culture around it. And uh, after Sparta raided Thebes and took it over for ah, a couple months, I think, maybe a year or two, um, in response, they, they made a fighting force uh, once they retook the city called the Sacred Band. It was a group of 150 male lovers um, who would fight together. You know, imagine the 300, mm-hmm. but really gay. And it's kind of fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a two-player cooperative endeavor where it, it almost plays like the mind a little bit, where you're mm-hmm. trying to match what you're doing. And it's a symmetric deck-building game where you have the same deck and you want to play the same person. Because when, when, when two lovers fight together, they get stronger. Right. Because they're, they're a fighting force together. Um, and it's 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 pretty stellar i have to say we're, we're still shopping it around and it's not you know it's not with anyone currently but uh i really like how it works and how and how pretty clean it is um and yeah it's 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 fantastic it's it's really cool and i love yeah joe came to me he's like i want to make this game with you i okay he's like read this book and i okay joe okay. and i i read this book and you know it was fantastic and i, I you know Joe's done more of the research on the history there, but it's it's really cool. It's it's really neato. Um and I'm really excited to eventually get it out, whatever whenever that is.
0: Now we had a little bit of talk before we started recording and you were talking about your love of karaoke. Do, do you have uh, any other interests that you wanna you wanna share with us? Um besides tabletop gaming, of course.
1: Oh, maybe I guess. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 have a lot of, you know, little hobbies or whatever. I, li- I like crafting. Um, lately I've been making a lot of shirts. I have like a cricket that like cuts stencils and I love to, to bleach shirts. It's super easy. I made a bunch of shirts for Stonewall for this event. Uh, I never used fabric spray paint before, but I, it worked pretty well. Which, um,
0: which look amazing by the way. And I will be wearing mine, uh, tomorrow, the Saturday of Origins um you know basically around on our our busiest day um just because I want to make sure that you get the exposure that you so so well deserve thank you um yeah, I, but but it's it's an amazing shirt design and you can definitely uh see it on our uh, social media so
1: yeah i mean thankfully our graphic designer uh was able to send me the file and i just cut it out and and you know worked nicely i gotta say i i was really pleased with it it was really nice um other hobbies outside of that i mean i've been reading a fair amount lately uh i just finished song of achilles that was really cute oh that was so cute and sad oh my gosh i need i need to tell joe my co-designer for the sacred band and liz from beyond solitaire we we did a podcast a couple months back and, and when I told them I hadn't read the book, they were like, "You need to read this book." <laughs> okay, I'll read the book. I've been reading Dune, but I'll get on it. And it, it was really, it was really good. Oh my gosh, wow. God, like, I still need
0: I, need. I still need to get to Dune too.
1: Yeah, I, I read it because I, I read the first six Dune books recently because the movie was coming out, and I was like, "Ah, I should probably read this and what have you." And then maybe I'll watch the Lynch movie. And so I read the first book and I was like, all right, that's, that's pretty good. Like, I wasn't blown away. Mm-hmm. And then I read a couple more and I was like, okay, this is pretty good. Okay. Um, and the last ones I was not as impressed by. Was, but overall. Was that when
0: Brian no, Robert no. took so, over? So or? the
1: The friend of mine who, who, asked, who, who I asked, like, hey, which would you recommend? Mm-hmm. He just said the first six written by Frank. Yes. And that, that's what I read. The last two I was not really into. Gotcha. They, they, they kind of slowed down. But the first four I really liked. I would, I would pretty easily recommend... Two is a bit of a lull, but it's kind of needed. It's kinda, you kind of need two to have it to be as good as the rest of them are.
0: So what's on your table right now besides what you've been developing?
1: Oh, uh, I mean, I play... Gosh, I play all sorts of games. I, I, uh, the other week I played... Uh, oh, gosh, what's the name of this game? Uh Taco Cat Pizza Pe- yeah, Taco Cat Pizza something. Go- goat cheese. Goat cheese, yeah. yes. Yeah, I played that it's so funny. Uh a friend of mine, he had a copy and we were just kinda just at the end of our game night, kinda mess you know, which kind of being silly. And I was like, What's this? And he's like, Oh, it's a really silly, you know, whatever game. I'm like, Well sure, let's play yeah. And we played it and it was it was really silly. It was very light and, and, and kinda goofy. But I mean I had a fun time. Yeah. I mean it wasn't like, this mind-melding, you know, like, six-hour Euro game or whatever. Some war game. But, you know, it was, it was fun. Um, and then a lot of a lot of clean staples, um, uh, like Skull and Cockroach Poker. Uh, I got to play Brian Brew recently. That was really good. I okay. quite like Brian Brew. And lately I've been playing a lot of Stick'em. It's a small card game by Capstone. It's like a trick-taker, but you pick a pain suit. And so every card normally is just a point whenever you win it in a trick. But if you get cards in your pain suit, they're worth their value in negative points. And nice. And so, you know if, I know, if you know I'm going to win the trick, you're like, I'll put a blue eight because you'll get negative eight points. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, it's so easy to tank someone's score. It, it's really good. I've been, I've been kind of hooked on that game. It's f- kind of fantastic.
0: That's pretty cool. We, we uh, you know, have talked about how we love uh, small games, and we actually played Sunny Day Sardine, Um, last night, and it's this little tiny game by 25th century that came in a little tiny tin, and I wasn't expecting a huge amount. Uh, They were... uh, Basically, if you bought $40 worth of product, you got this game for free. Okay. And it's a solid little game. Something that will be uh, coming to the table quite often if we have, you know, 15-20 minutes before dinner. We're just looking to get something to the table. I think that that's a really good candidate, so... Uh, we had a lot of fun with that. So it seems like we, we kind of have similar veins in, in what we enjoy and what we like to play.
1: I mean, i tell people I'll play anything. I mean, with, the, with you know, some caveats, of course, mm-hmm. time being the biggest one. Right. If a game's like over two hours, man, I have to really like the game. I, re- I really have to love the it's game. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, t- I tend to, to drift toward games that are 90 minutes or fewer. I have bought one game this con so far, a single game that I was very excited to buy. Mm -hmm. Like I knew, I I, I, I saw it on the origins list on BGG, and I'm like, I'm buying that game 1 million percent. And that game is Llama Dice, because it's the first time it's been available in the States. I almost imported a copy, because Llama, like, oh my gosh, we play plenty of Llama. And again, it's not like some big, fancy game. And then when I saw there's a dice version, I go kaboom, let's do it. Um, And I got to play it once. it, it ebbs and flows, but I, I, I like it. I, nice. need to, I need to play it more. That's that's the real answer is. I need to play it more.
0: <laughs> is it as easy to teach as like Llama is?
1: I would say so. Okay. I would say I was surprised. We went through the rule book and at first we we're a little confused because, you know, it's your first play and I, I didn't look too hard at the rules. Most games I do, but for Llama I was, whatever. <laughs> um, and a lot of them are very similar from Llama. It is not that far a departure, just with some dice. Oh, perfect. So uh,
0: anything else that you wanna discuss?
1: Gosh, um, I, man, I, n- nothing jumps to mind. I mean, I'm kinda, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to be talking about all this because it's just really important stuff. Um, and and seeing, seeing all the support, you know, at the convention, I've had so many people come up to me and tell me how important they think it is and how they want more games like this. There's a hunger, there's a desire, a drive for more games like this. And it's amazing that my publisher, Catastrophe, was willing to, to, to sign the game and, and, and get our work and make it you know, get it done with me. And I really hope that other publishers see this um, and say, hey, we want more games like this. We actively want more games like this. So that's something that I'm excited to see. You know, they don't need to be historical, but you know, g- games with these themes are, are rare. And you know, most historical games are about shooting each other eh. Yeah. Eh. A, a pass. It's been done. Yeah, it's really been
0: done. We're we're always looking for something new, you know, whether it's a new theme, a new mechanic, and I think that's you have there's, there's elements of take that, or not take that, but tug of war in your game. You know, there are comparisons to games like uh, Twilight Struggle and that, but Um, I think the the magic of it is it's a theme that hasn't been explored, and it it gives you that visceral feeling, like I said. And that is something that's new. It's unique. It hasn't been done a lot, in my opinion, and I would absolutely agree that there needs to be more of that in this space.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yep. 100%.
0: So how can people keep up with you on social media?
1: Uh, Well, for social media, I like to keep pretty clean. I really just use twitter so i'm sorry if all i use is facebook or instagram uh, but my twitter is uh taylor Schuss, or you can you can find my handle at drawn onward it's a palindrome so if you can spell the first half you're good
0: <laughs> perfect well taylor again thank you so much it's been such a pleasure having you on the uh show and you know have a great convention we're we're looking forward to walking by the booth and seeing you, you know, a few more times before we leave. And uh, if I don't get to say it beforehand, congratulations on the Kickstarter. We hope that it goes extremely well for you. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be backing, I know that much.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm, I'm very excited to see what Saturday brings. That'll be really interesting to see the foot traffic there and the interest levels. So, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And I think that's
0: going to do it for us today. Check out our website at cardboardtime.com for all our latest information. Our Instagram and Twitter is at cardboard underscore time. We have our Board Game Geek podcast page and our Board Game Arena group. Just search for Cardboard Time where you can start up a game or just chat with us. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics please email cardboardtime at gmail.com. And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time. Happy gaming.